Any sign of anyone yet? Yeah, both your mom and Vinny are here. here? Yeah, <laughs> hello. I just I just got here. Hello. 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 Hello and welcome to good-looking people in small clever rooms that utilize every centimeter of available space with mind-boggling efficiency, and what a day for tennis. What a day for family fun of all kinds. I'm Andrew and I'm here with Brianna. Hello. And as always, we're joined by my mom, Norma. Hi. And by our friend Vinny. Hiya. I read this about a week ago and I kind of can't remember exactly what all happens in it, so this will be an exciting adventure for me as I dive back into my notes and into the book here. Me too. Um, I hope I took good notes because I can't either quite remember. (laughs) Well, so we start with Helen Steeply interviewing Putrincor. Is that her name? The pro-rector? Yeah, well, more Putrincor interviewing Helen Steeply, but yeah, both of them talking to Mm -hmm. each other. Yeah, and so they're just sitting in the bleachers and watching... Uh, this is sort of a flashback a little bit, and they're sitting and watching Hal play Orthostice in this match uh, that we've talked about before, in which Hal almost loses to Ortho. Mm-hmm. Right. Orthostice, a.k.a. the darkness. The, dark- the right. darkness. Can we right. just talk for a second about how unusual the name Ortho is? Has that come up before? Is it short for something, it is or is really it just Ortho? Name. I think it's just Ortho. Huh. I think so too. What? I'm going to Google uh, the origin of the name Ortho. Yeah, maybe there's yeah. a longer. Okay. Yeah, see, a longer I figured it was just a made-up name. Yeah. yeah, it could be. I don't know. Uh, yeah. I feel like I haven't heard that name anywhere outside of the context of this book. Okay. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> According to popular-babynames.com, <laughs> yes. uh, the name Ortho, between 2000 and 2018, there were one birth of Ortho in the country <laughs> below, which represents an average of zero birth of children wow. bearing the first name Ortho per year on average throughout this period. Wow. Does it say on what the country? Last available year, uh... Let's see. German. Oh. The country where the first name Ortho is the most common is Germany. <laughs> hmm. It's the most common it... because it's the only? <laughs> uh, currently. Okay. Origin and meaning of the name Ortho. The origin is English. It is... Okay. Um, it... <laughs> It says noun, ortho, countable, chemistry, an isomer of a benzene derivative having two substituents adjacent on the ring, Uh, countable, astronomy, a certain type of flat eyepiece, countable, photography, dated, an orthochromatic plate, countable, imaging, an orthophoto. None of these sound like... Uncountable medicine, orthopedics. This isn't real. None of these I sound like name origins. Website. No, they don't. Mm-hmm. Okay, what about names.org? <laughs> the meaning of names. <laughs> this one claims the origin is Arabic. Okay. <laughs> hey, okay. hey, do you want to know <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> 
countable chemistry and isomer of a Sounds to me like there's a plagiarist in our midst. Yeah. What does countable mean? Why does it say countable at the beginning of each of these? It's well, that is it's a countable a... noun. Yeah, oh. a unit yeah. of measurement. So it's just a it's just looking at the dictionary definition of these words. It's not actually oh, looking at yeah. like how Ortho it might apply to names. Origin. Mm. Yeah. Ortho is a Greek prefix meaning straight, upright, right, or correct. Oh. Okay. Yeah. So that's interesting. Well, orthochromatic um, film which is I where, know about. Right. Which that's is where like, like orthodoxy comes from. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of it as like excluding almost. Orthochromatic film is black and white film that's more responsive to certain colors than other colors. So like... Mm dark rooms where they have like a red light but the color red doesn't do anything to the photosensitive paper that's because the paper is orthochromatic and it's not sensitive to the color red last but not least ancestry.com tells me that ortho is a surname hmm. huh which is not that sounds unlikely too it what does. How many orthos are there in the world? Well, let me see if Ancestry.com will <laughs> say. Yeah. Uh, there are 240 historical documents that oh. hold the name ortho. Huh. Uh, 124 birth, marriage, and deaths. Huh. Three military records. Seven hmm. immigration records. 55 member trees. If you're a member of Ancestry.com with the surname ortho, Email us at smallcleverpod <laughs> at gmail.com. Yeah. Speaking uh, of families, so uh, yeah. Putrin Court, when she's talking to he or she, Tiri, she is she. she. When Tiri, she's talking yeah. to Helen Steeply, I like, I like that she mentions, like she's just trying to be uh, pleasant, right? She's making small talk and she mentions that her family is also big. Yeah, my, mm-hmm. my family's yeah. loved ones also, are also large of size. Yeah, it is large. difficult to be large. I she thought also, that was sweet. There's she a, there's also another, says that they've been told to be unfriendly to yes. Helen. Mm-hmm. There, there's another turn of phrase she uses in that paragraph that I really like, where she's talking about Trelch, and she says, he is a strange and unhappy. A strange <laughs> and unhappy, yeah. This is, I mean, it's a, kind of an odd scene. They're, like, trying to ignore Trelch. He's, he's doing his play-by-play commentary thing and pretending to be two different commentators talking to each other right throughout this mm-hmm. scene right which is his usual that's what he's always doing right that's right. that's yeah. standard for him so i was trying to remember this i feel like in one of the first readings like he used to have a microphone that he talked into but somebody <laughs> stole it yes. and now he just talks into his fist as if oh, it were yeah. a microphone that sounds yeah, right i, I kind of remember that too yeah. Maybe the ghost stole his microphone. Ooh. Well, the ghost does like stealing things. Well, mm-hmm. the ghost likes moving things around. Yeah. Yeah. The ghost slash poltergeist. Yes. Right. I can't remember this conversation very well, except they talk for a long time. They're, which so is they kind of funny because Delint started out being like the the handler of Helen. Right. Mm-hmm. But then he got distracted or tired of it, right? And he's looking yeah. at the, he's watching the play more. Yeah, he's doing right? his statistics thing, he's, I yeah. think. Yeah, and, and well, so then, and eventually uh, DeLint went down to talk to Ortho. Um, right. Like during right. the break. Oh, right. So that's when Putrincourt came. And sat down. Right. Because somebody they, is yeah. apparently supposed to be with her at all times. Is that what we're assuming? I think that so. That they've been told not to leave her alone. I think mm-hmm. so. 
I would believe that. There's also the thing where, uh, so they're speaking French. Yes. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. They were speaking French, like, so that Delint won't understand them. Right. But then Steepley begins to suspect that maybe Delint actually can and just pretends not to speak French. She also, Helen also wonders about Poutrincourt's accent. She yes. says no, that it's well, not quite I like Marat's Canadian, right? Yes, she is. Okay, but then Got she it. points out that that Marat's accent is different than Poutrincourt's, and so then you wonder: so who is Thierry Poutrincourt? Who is she really? Yeah, there's well, like some there's some mysteries about her here, um, right? Because there's also some some mention of like. She uses some phrases that are more Parisian French than Quebecois French. Right, right. Uh, well, I took it to be that she started to purposefully use more Parisian French phrases and everything in order to see if Steeply would catch on to it. And Steeply yeah. didn't, really, which is then what kind of leads Poutrincourt to realize that Steeply's not who they say they are. Right. Yeah. It's like they're both kind of poking around at the other's identity in a way, but sharing mm-hmm. yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. There's also the, the Endnote 273, which I made a note of. The French word for stars, apparently. French oh, translates yeah. yeah. to stars. Shooting stars, falling stars, which made mm-hmm. me draw say Hal with a sad face. Yeah. <laughs> he's out there oh, losing yeah. his match. He's been the star, yeah. and he's out, there, he's out there falling. I think that that's really dramatic, though, because it's not like this exhibition match is going to really mean anything it's like a practice match isn't it yeah it is but um right i mean later on we kind of do get the feeling that this does mean well that it might mean more than just being a practice match right like hal wants to know what it meant i think yeah Yeah. like why are they being told to play normally this this is like this is unusual that this would happen so close to a tournament right Mm mm-hmm Oh, here's the other note that I had in big letters that I just noticed. So what else do we know about Poutrincourt? Do we Not know more lot. about Thierry Poutrincourt? She's kind of mysterious. So what does she yeah, teach? Yeah, this is kind what of the first... She... She's a pro-rector. Okay. Yeah, she's a pro-rector, but this is really the first um, long period of time that we've spent with her. Right. Mm-hmm. And interesting that she would be one of the people that would be sent to kind of watch steeply mm-hmm. is i mean that seems significant that ct must have assigned her and delint to the helen steeply issue mm-hmm. kind of the mm-hmm. helen steeply detail mm-hmm. i also like helen steeply keeps trying to get information about whether she's going to be able to interview hal right mm-hmm. and at one point mm-hmm. it says that that ct when she talked to ct about it the ct's monologue to steeply had done to Steepley's brain kind of what a flashbulb does to your eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really like that. You leave dazzled in a way, like you can't, like, you can't focus. I'm trying to find it here. I feel like there's some hints in this section that Poutrincourt is like, there's something deeply mysterious about her background that implies to me that there's like more to her than she's letting on or that anyone knows. Did anyone else get this? Like, so she switches between Canadian and 
French dialects. Right. Um, almost mm-hmm. seamlessly, it says. Mm-hmm. And then it says something about, so to survive, this is at the end of the chapter, so to survive here for later is finally to have it both ways, Thierry Poutrincourt said quietly in nearly accentless English as if to herself. That, that felt strange to me too. Yeah, and at some point it seemed like she is, she is really on to Steeply's undercover Ness, yeah, that she's yeah, an she definitely she's onto it. has it she, made for sure, right? Mm-hmm. So there's so much talk here again about sort of the psychology of tennis and <laughs> yeah, and mm-hmm. playing. And she talks about that the adolescent advantage in tennis is that at first they're fearless. The pl- they're right. the, they're young and fearless. They don't have anxiety or stress. They can come out of nowhere and beat really good adult players because of that. It made me think mm-hmm. of Coco Groff recently. These really young, young, young tennis players who blast onto the national and international scene and beat like really high seated players. Mm-hmm. Uh, and everyone's stunned. But it kind of makes sense. It's like they don't really have anything to lose. Right. Mm-hmm. They don't really have the stress of if you lose, it's a terrible, terrible thing. They obviously are hyper competitive, but if they lose, people can say, well, she's like 15. How's she going to beat Serena? And so their loss is easily excused and, and it's not that big a deal. So they don't have the anxiety where, where the adult players, the high ranked players playing these, these young whippersnappers, probably feel a lot of anxiety because it's it must be humiliating to lose to them. Yeah. I mean you would feel you would worry about losing to them because it would feel like such a humiliation in a way. Mhm. Mhm. But then she goes on to say uh talk about, you know, so then then so you're young and all of a sudden you're beating these really good adult players, but then at some point you become loved for winning for being winners. And she claims, I mean, we've talked about this before, like they talk a lot about protecting their players from the media and from that exposure. Mm -hmm. And we've talked Mm -hmm. about, wouldn't it be better to teach them how to manage the pressures instead of Mm -hmm. just protecting them from that? And she kind of addresses that. She says- Yes, she does. That they are toughened up at ETA. So that they'll be able to stand up to the pressure. And uh, the other interesting thing I thought was uh, they mentioned, briefly mentioned Mario Mm -hmm. in this section. It says the apparition with the lens and metal pole was gone overhead. And it just think again how much he is overlooked. Like Helen is not trying to talk to Mario. Helen Steeply is not shown any interest in talking to Mario. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. is surprising. Assuming, I suppose, that they see him as too disabled to have any any knowledge that input. could be useful. Or, but it, yeah, I but guess. it's kind of weird because of all of the kids. If she's really trying to get more information about uh, the entertainment and James O's film work, Mario would be the one to talk to because mm-hmm. yeah. he was the only one that was closely involved in any of that so it's it is really weird mm-hmm. yeah 
Yeah, and I feel like Mario is the only one who probably would speak with Steeply. Like, even probably. if, um, right. you know, they didn't put a moratorium on talking to Hal, I'm not sure if Hal would voluntarily speak with Steeply, but Mario definitely would. Yeah, I mean, at the very least, he'd be much more candid than right. Hal. Yeah. I can't imagine that Hal will, right. s- will, will be forthcoming about anything related to his family. Mm-hmm. Oh, there was another... When it says something about Delint ignored him, referring to Steeply, mm. why did it say that? Maybe I should tr- I should try to find that because Steeply is in Helen mode. Well, okay, so oh yeah, um, I am not here to that? profile the boy. Steeply said, but in French again, Delint ignored him. It's not just the strengths or the number of strengths; it's do they come together to make a game? Right. So, so I, why does I he use the him pronoun? So here's my theory. My theory is that in this scene. We are getting close narration from the perspective of Steeply. And Steeply, in his head, is Hugh Steeply in the character of Helen Steeply. Like, he, he doesn't... The, the, the identity of Helen Steeply is one that he wears on the outside for purposes of deception. It's not the identity that he carries himself. And there's even some talk throughout the chapter about... Like at the very beginning, uh, Steeply's pre-assignment decision was to let all size references pass as if there was some ability to screen out any reference to size or girth originating possibly in adolescence. Um, And there's another reference later on to the sweater he's wearing as Helen uh, belongs to Steeply's wife. So (laughs) I think that the use of masculine pronouns there is because we are in Hugh Steeply's head. Mm Mm-hmm. And and so Hugh you Steeply say is steeply, it, steeply is telling that is narrating this because I wouldn't. Uh, well, well, he's, he's not that. he's not narrating right. directly. Like it's still third person narration. But you know how this how the narration is. Like sometimes we're hearing one character's thoughts, right. and sometimes we're hearing hearing a different character's thoughts, mm-hmm. and it seems to kind of stick with one character for a complete scene. Um, mm-hmm. So it feels like we are we are with Steeply in this scene. Mm-hmm. At least that's my explanation of that. I do think that's a little odd. Yeah, because all other references are assuming that she is female, that she is a female reporter. Right. Another small, I have all these, I I feel like my uh, comments don't tie together very well because I can't remember the flow of the, I can't remember the flow of the pages that we read. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it also points out, I think, uh, that Helen had also had lunch in the dining hall. So she's been around for a while. I think it references lunch in the dining hall. And the scene that we had seen earlier was definitely dinner. It was dinner, yeah. It It was was dinner, dinner. yeah. Um. Yeah, and and, well, it references like um, that Helen was able to see students or like students were able to talk to Helen, but Helen wasn't able to talk to the students or something like that. Uh, Something Mm -hmm. weird about lunchtime. Yeah. For me, what I found interesting um, in, you know, this discussion of celebrity and fame and everything in the tennis world and all of that was the uh, parallels to drug use with Mm. fame and everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, And how, yeah. Say more about that. Um, that both of them are kind of about chasing this initial high that mm-hmm. with, um, you know, right when you, it talks about how right when a young tennis player goes into the scene, they're, 
it's very exciting for them uh, and right. that they do kind of reach this high and this um, emotional peak. Um, but then as they continue on and keep on playing and everything kind of just dulls and they're never quite able to reach that initial point again. Mm-hmm. Right. They kind of say, it says somewhere that like, so if you attain the goal, you find that it doesn't fix any, everything in your life. So you, you're trying to be this tennis star, right? And you become one. And then you find out that it doesn't fix everything in your life. And so you either respond with despair when you mm-hmm. find this out or you over-celebrate and you become right. a celebrity with everything that goes along with it, with the, the, you know, the popular culture scene and the, probably the drug use, I don't know, mm-hmm. and the, the parties and the, you know, just the glitz of being a celebrity. So either you fall into the despair side or you fall into the over-celebrating side. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It says you can't both, you can't both celebrate and suffer. And play right. is always suffering, they said. Yes. So yes. basically, you can't, if you're celebrating, then you're not going to be a good play. You, you can't really, you're not really playing anymore. Right. It's something different that you're doing. Yeah. But interesting that the word play implies fun, implies right. celebrating. Right. You know? Right. It is yeah. really <laughs> weird. <laughs> Just thinking about uh, Putrincor as this kind of mysterious figure who has some, like, perceptive skills beyond what you might expect for just an average uh, pro rector at a tennis academy. Uh, Endnote 276, it's talking about a thing that I thought was unusual in any event. So she says, you're doomed that if you do not have also within you some ability to transcend the goal, transcend the success of the best if you get here. The footnote mentions that the Vulgate Quebecois transpersant uh, idiomatically connotes doom. So, mm. like she said, the word transpersant, and that somehow me, I, I, I'm just uh, kind of intrigued by that. I don't, I didn't chase this the down at all. I don't know if it's doom. true, right? But, but transparent, right? Transpersant is is transparent in typical French. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so the the end note says. Using the Vulgate Quebecois transpersant, whose idiomatic connotation of doom, Poutrincourt shouldn't have had any reason to think the Parisians speaking Steeply would know, which is the slip that indicates that Poutrincourt has figured out that Steeply is neither a civilian soft profiler nor even a female, which Poutrincourt's probably known ever since Steeply lit his flouter flume with the elbow of his lighter arm out instead of in, uh, the only real chink in the operative's distaff persona, would, which would probably require an almost professionally hypervigilant and suspicious person to notice the significance of. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I think that's what made me ask, what do we know about Putricourt? Right. Yeah. She doesn't just sound like your everyday pro-rector. Yeah. I mean, is she a spy? I, is she a, I, honestly is she I, an I, undercover agent for someone? Given the hints that this chapter is dropping, I wouldn't be that surprised. Like we know almost nothing about her, so it's hard to say. But right. maybe. I was curious if she was a candidate for Luria P. I wondered mm. that too. Ooh. I always wonder who who could be Luria P. Yeah, right. I wondered that. 
just because yeah. I didn't French really speaking examine and... it. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think she's a candidate for sure, but I don't necessarily think she's a good candidate for Laurie. <laughs> right. I Fair. guess I kind of felt that way too, but I'm just suspicious of any. Uh, yeah, well, I feel like whenever we meet a Canadian character French-speaking in this book, we, woman. Yeah, yeah, we immediately yeah. get kind of suspicious of them. And uh-huh. she is yeah. kind of mysterious. <laughs> I mean, we don't know mm-hmm. we don't know much about her, and I, I just felt like it was wrong that we didn't know more about her, kind of. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, it's a, like it's a hole. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a hole there. Why don't we know mm-hmm. more about Poutrincourt? Put, how do you say it? Poutrincourt? Poutrincourt. Is how I would does pronounce it. Teach? I don't know how correct Does she that teach is. a class? I was, all the so directors do, don't they? They, they all yeah. teach yeah. one class, I think. Let me so do a quick teach? search and see if I can figure that out. Yeah, because I feel like we've heard what class she teaches before. I kind of feel I'm like sure we there, have there was that chapter that listed all the classes right. that the pro-rectors teach. Yeah. Right. Oh, okay, here. She teaches a class on Quebec separatists. Thierry Poutrincourt's uh, separatism in return, Quebecois history from Frontenac through the age of interdependence, which to be oh. candid held never heard much positive about and had always deflected his mom's suggestions that he might profitably take until this final Ooh. terms schedule juggling got likes? dicey. Yeah, he finds difficult a, and annoying, but surprisingly really less and less dull as the semester wears on. So he's right. enjoying it. Right. Mm. So who is she? <laughs> who is she? Is a section that raises a lot of questions. Do we have other stuff to talk about here before we move on to the Man of War grill? Uh, let's uh, see. I... I've got a few things. Uh, one, I yeah. thought that it was interesting that Hal is an emotional player. Um, or that... Uh, yeah. he, right, they describe yeah. him as that. Yeah, what we know of Hal, I mean, it makes sense in a way. But I feel like Hal... Hal's a kind of emotional person who spends so much time trying to make people think he's not emotional, I guess. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, right. so yeah. This, is, this is the thing. So DeLint says this. Hal looks just as perfectly dead out there, but he's more vulnerable in terms of, like, emotionally. Um, mm-hmm. but, and we can get into this more when we get to this, but later on in this section, we get back to Hal, and there's a moment in the narration that says... Hal himself hasn't had a bona fide intensity of an interior life type emotion since he was tiny. So right. mm. at least I, I think that's from Hal's perspective. Like he doesn't think of himself as a particularly emotional person. Yeah. The other thing somewhere here at the end of this first chunk of the chapter, there's, I guess it's Putrincourt talking about that whole idea of you attain your goal and then you find out that it's not enough, basically. Um, mm-hmm. And says something like, they must walk, they, the players, the young players, right, must walk between needing the success and mocking the success. Yeah. Or was that Stitz? Stitz says that maybe, that they have to walk between, that that's his goal, is to help them walk between that, needing the success and mocking the success. I think this is on page 681, hmm. maybe. And that, that it says that he feels... Uh, that James O. was a student of types of sight. He talks about James O. Uh, Not so much Mm -hmm. how one sees a thing, but this relationship between oneself and what one sees. He says, Stitt says, he, and then this was in quotes, that he, James O., translated this numerously across different fields. This relationship yes. between your oneself so like, and what one sees. So the physics the nuclear, and optics, 
Yeah, and physics and optics and film and, and film and, and tennis, tennis, presumably. Probably, yeah. I thought that was probably important. I don't fully understand it, but yeah. I mean, it's it makes a fascinating artist statement. I was thinking about like this is absolutely something that you could see, you could imagine seeing in like a filmmaker's bio at an avant-garde film festival, like <laughs> studying not so much how one sees a thing, but this relation between oneself and what one sees mm -hmm. could be like a Nathaniel Dorsky artist statement or something like that. It's like James O's early experience with the thing in his bedroom when he was a kid that that inspired his whole annular oh, yeah, fusion the, work the later. Oh, yeah, the rolling on the right. floor. So there's a doorknob rolling on the floor, which is a doorknob rolling on the floor. And there's mm -hmm. the kid who's in the bedroom looking at it. But the important thing is what happens between... It's that, it's that space between the rolling doorknob and the kid sitting on the bed where the important stuff happens. It's not right. in either the kid or the doorknob. Right. I would also like to say, on a different note entirely, and because I'm, I've been influent, heavily in, influenced by Brianna's ghosts, <laughs> is that during the tennis match, uh, Hal's ball, oh, a gust, yeah. a freak... Gust comes out of nowhere and blew the ball it's, out. And Stice well, looked even, more surprised than Hal did. And I wondered if it was a ghost that pushed it, his ball out I, of bounds. I wondered about that too, because they also, <laughs> I, they don't say specifically, I tried to read this more closely and I didn't highlight it, so I can't find it now in my I can find e it. But they say it's as if a gust came out of nowhere. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. An abrupt, yes, an abrupt tight curve out of bounds as if some freak gust came out of so nowhere. So they're not and actually blew it out. saying that a freak gust right. came out of nowhere and blew it out, just that the ball changed direction suddenly. Right. Yeah. The punter's brother's face registered nothing as he stood at the ad corner adjusting something on the strings. That's really weird. It said, Hal passed Stice off the backhand down the line and the ball looked sure to land fair. And then yep. at the last, last possible second, it veered out an abrupt tight curve out of bounds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ghost. I bet it's the ghost. It's the ghost. It's probably the ghost. Sure. Absolutely. I just, wanted to, I just wanted to give that nod to Brianna's ghosts. <laughs> Uh, well, while we're talking about the ghost, at uh, uh, the very end of this chapter, I wrote time ghost question mark time ghost time say more ghost. what does that mean um, so i know we're pretty much believing that this that the ghost is actually a poltergeist now but what if it's actually a ghost that's existing through time uh, so this ghost that's basically echoing itself throughout time um and, <gasps> yeah mm. a time ghost Ex explain more this yeah is what makes you uh, what, what suggests that to you uh, I think it was mostly the talk uh, going back to um, Dame Zoe. Um, oh, right. And I'm not exactly sure what specifically did. This is one of my notes that I wrote that I'm right. not exactly <laughs> sure why I wrote it. <laughs> right. Uh, but um, that's James, that it could be James Zoe who's the ghost, and he's just kind of, rather than being a sentient ghost, is actually kind of a ghost that's just kind of repeating himself, uh, repeating mm. these events that have happened throughout time. Mm -hmm. Ooh, I like that a lot. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> I'm just gonna Ooh. keep thinking about that yeah. <laughs> because that makes me very, very happy. <laughs>
I can't let go uncommented upon that Delint is a jerk. Oh, yeah. Through this entire conversation and how condescending he is to Mm -hmm. Steeply and like, let me explain to you, babe. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hideous. Honey. Yeah. Awful. Let's tell you about tennis. The alternate theory of that is that he too knows that she's there under false pretenses. I don't think he's that smart. And that he's giving her a hard time. Like he's being sarcastic almost. I think he doesn't have nearly (laughs) that much awareness of the people around him. Yeah, yeah, I really don't Although, think he's that if smart. If knew knows what's going on, perhaps yeah, CT but, but knows they take, what's they going take points on to and say, told them. No, no, no. no well, and told I, them I don't to think so. what was going on and they why make, they the, had the, to I mean, stay they, with that Helen. end note. Though takes pains to say that, like only the most paranoid, like observant, careful person would even begin to oh, suspect well, that this was the case. I guess that and, yeah. and that's cuts not Delint. Right, yeah, and that, you know, it's been, like, subtly dropping in that, like, Putrin Court's been dropping, like, subtle hints and been, like, testing steeply the entire conversation and everything. Right. Right. Whereas Delin's just being a complete Obnoxious. Yeah. Yeah. I'm ready to move on if we need to. Okay, yeah. The Man of War? Yeah, let's. The Man of War. So, this is the first time, this is a a new character here. We meet Maddie Pemulus. This was another horrible, horrible chunk. Yes. Yeah, yeah there's a really horrible. awful story here. And it, uh-huh. the whole thing explains why Michael Pemulus is so stuck on maintaining his scholarship to ETA because right. he doesn't want to go home. I right. mean, it mm-hmm. clarifies that whole thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I've got four questions here uh, okay. that I think we can all answer. So one, this is Pemulus's brother. Yes. The yes. Older brother. Yes. Older. Okay. Uh, Pemulus's dad is dead. Yes. Yes. Pemulus is Brazilian. Okay. Um, and Pemulus's brother knows poor Tony. Pemulus yes. is Brazilian? I thought Pemulus was Irish. Irish. That's what I was wondering too. But it, then it says, um, okay, well, here. Do, 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 they're, do. they're talking uh, about two Brazilians in bell bottoms who walk past the window, who come up a couple yeah, times. And okay, well, we know here on page six eighty three, Maddie's dad come over on a boat from Luth and Leinster, nineteen eighty nine. So let's figure out where Luth is. Uh, Luth uh, is a village on the eastern side of the Darling River in New South Wales. Oh, Australia. Oh. No. Uh, no. No. That can't be right. It's got to be named Maybe after two, one in Ireland. It might be. Yeah, that could be. Oh, okay. Uh, County bet, Luth, Ireland. There yeah. we go. Yeah. Yeah, there we go. Okay. Because the dialect sounds very Yep. Irish yeah, okay. Too. Yeah, County Luth is a county in the Republic of Ireland. It is in the province of Leinster and is part of the Mideast region. Hmm. It's named after the village Luth. All right. So that's three yeses and one no. Yes. Thank you. So one, uh, and I, I would like to say that in some ways, this book is about child abuse and mm-hmm. it's ugliness. And some of it is really extreme. And everyone that reads it would say that it's extreme and horrible. And other abuses that take place are more subtle 
and perhaps are passed off as normal parenting, but are indeed really abusive and destroy yeah. humans. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I would just, and, and I could make a case that the whole book is about think, the effects yeah. of childhood abuse. I think yeah. the more we get into this, the more I agree with you about that. Like, it seems like even things that maybe on the first read didn't, that, that didn't line up for me, the more I think about it this time, it's like, oh, all of this has, can be traced, <laughs> traced back to abusive parents. Or right. like which childhood, is why, I, which is why I've wrung or, my hands sometimes about like, oh my gosh, Think of all the bad things I must have done to my own children. Because some of these people that are being abusive, Mm -hmm. that's not their intent. I mean, they don't they're not aware enough of it to like Avril, for instance, I think is incredibly abusive. But she wouldn't she would think that she's trying really hard to be the perfect mother, which is what we all Mm -hmm. try to be. So so it's like a cautionary tale, like, oh my gosh, everybody in this book. Has is either abusing their children or they and they're abusing them because they were abused as children themselves, and it's this horrible cycle of abuse. And it made me wonder about David Foster Wallace and how he grew up this yeah, time when I read I, this chunk. I, I don't know anything about I don't know anything about his childhood other than that his mother was a grammarian and wrote published grammar books. Mm. Uh, and um, he was a junior tennis player too, right? Yes. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Was his mother Avril? <laughs> oh, I, yeah, I don't know. I feel. Um, I I don't want. I don't want to speculate. I think it doesn't matter ultimately. Although it gets down to that piece that your grandma always said was that he couldn't have. He couldn't write this stuff if he didn't experience it. Well, and one starts it, to wonder, and we argued about that. I said that that wasn't the case, yeah. that you can write about anything. Yes. But there was yeah. some general acknowledgement that it's partly true, though. There's something. I think some... based on the research that I did about the David Foster Wallace papers that are, uh-huh. I forget what university they're at, that he has at least some personal experience with a lot of these settings and maybe similar types of people to the characters that he's writing. Uh-huh. I wouldn't begin to speculate about childhood abuse type things. Well, the child abuse mm-hmm. is really troubling and it's, yeah. it's long, it's, it's continuing theme through the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and also makes such a strong case about how child abuse plays out in all different kinds of dysfunctional and destructive ways in a person's adult life then. Mm-hmm. And some of the abused people would be able to say that their life is in ruins because of, as an effect of the child abuse that they experienced. And some of them would defend their parents to the end. So it's mm-hmm. it's it differs from from person to person. But poor Maddie Pemulus, poor Michael Pemulus. I mean, it's almost as bad to experience the abuse secondhand by wa- right. having to be present yeah. and see your mm-hmm. belo- assumedly a beloved older brother who you probably think is the best thing in the mm-hmm. world be treated like that. Mm-hmm. Has got to be terrifying. Yeah. And like constant it's, terror I think, I think and constant can, trauma. Yeah. I don't really want to dwell on this no. story much unless people have specific things to say. There are a Just couple of really great 
yeah, ugh. There are a couple really great character descriptions in this section that made me smile a lot. They describe Maddie as having a permanent smile that always seemed like he was trying not to, but just couldn't help it. Uh-huh. Uh, I like that a lot. And also, so Maddie knows poor Tony and glimpses right. him walking past the window right. of this restaurant that he's in. Yeah. And it says, uh, Kraus never so much walking as making an infinite series of grand entrances into yes. pocket after pocket of space. I yeah. love I really that. Like that. Yeah. so much. Yeah. Yes. Reminded him of black and white era starlets descending curved stairs into some black tie function. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It did make me feel sorrier for Pemulus. Yeah. For sure. Michael. Uh, Before I kind of was down on him as being, you know, an opportunist and and just kind of a low life kind of character, you know, always looking out for number one and trying to get rich off of scams Mm -hmm. and... Not particularly admirable, but mm-hmm. it really helps to explain who he is and why he is that way. Yeah. And why he's so desperate to do whatever it takes, presumably blackmail, to keep his place at ETA. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, he's willing to do anything to make sure that he can stay there. But why does Avril dislike him so much? There's still that too. Well, bad people can dislike each other for any number of reasons. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think that she's suspicious of him. Maybe she sees the abused child in him. She was an abused child. Maybe there's Maybe. something. So then we're back with Hal. Yes. Mm-hmm. After the match, he goes, he's looking for shit. He's trying but to find shit. Uh, and, 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 and so he has to listen to DeLint's kind of breakdown of the match instead. Ugh. Right. And uh, <laughs> I felt corrected. I felt corrected by this because my first take on it was that Hal seemed kind of unconcerned about his potential loss, his almost loss mm-hmm. in that match. Like he didn't, I didn't think that he came across as being freaked out by it, but apparently he really is freaked out yeah. and yeah. Mm-hmm. when he was trying to find shtit and they told it who did he ask about shtit was that delint delint uh, yeah. some he was so, yeah. he, somebody said he's out and so is he avoiding hell he's I wondered out that. sounds very yeah. vague uh he's out it's like not like well he'll be back you know he went out to dinner or he went nothing it's just he's out which Sounds like he's avoiding Hal, which I thought I thought Hal probably felt that way, which which probably, will make him yeah. even more worried, right? Mm-hmm. But so after that brief talk, you just never quite occurred out there, kid. Right, right. <laughs> which really freaked him out when. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He never quite yeah. His did. choice of words chills Hal to the root. Right. And so then he goes and he he kind of unwinds by watching some of his dad's experimental films. I thought that mm-hmm. was really weird. I thought that yeah. whole thing. I spent a lot of time on this section looking mm-hmm. back at the filmography of and mm. and looking at which films he had chosen to watch. I wondered yeah. why he would watch these films as a way to help himself feel better. Right. Or is he wallowing in his bad feelings in his depressed feelings it's unclear so so there's some about wave bye-bye to the bureaucrat it gets into more it like kind of gives us a plot summary for that 
right? Yeah, yeah, it gives us a plot summary and it gives us a little bit of a glimpse as to why Hal would watch that one uh, to kind of right. unwind and feel better. Uh, can I tell you my frustrating rabbit hole that, that was very brief and very frustrating? Yes. <laughs> yes, please. Uh, mm-hmm. So it mentions uh, valuable coupon has been removed, which is maddening because it's all a monologue from some bespectacled little contemporary of Miles Penn and Heath Pearson. Um, uh, I couldn't figure out who these people were, Miles Penn and Heath Pearson. I did a Google search and it didn't tell me much other than that there was a Miles Penn who went on Shark Tank a couple years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And there's a Heath Pearson who seems really cool. He's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Michigan. Uh, He's an (laughs) anthropologist and a community organizer and an editor for Abolition, a journal of insurgent politics. Uh, But both of these people seem uh, seem far too young to be the people that are being referenced here. Yeah, Um, I thought there was a pen who was referenced before in the book. Uh, well, there's a, in... there's a there's there are students named Penn. There's brothers. Oh, okay. So is that somehow connected to the? Or oh wait, do, oh do you, oh I think I misunderstood this. Some some bespectacled little contemporary of Miles Penn and Heath Pearson. So were those other students at ETA who would have been around at the same time? Mm, that yeah. makes more Perhaps. sense now. I thought he was talking yeah. about like a monologuist or a, a philosopher or something like that. And I was frustrated mm. that I couldn't find anything. I really looked at all these films that, that Hal was watching. And, and we should note that at, at the beginning where it talks about him unwinding by watching these films, it says anyone else looking at him in there tonight would call him Hal depressed. Mm-hmm. Right. So the valuable coupon has been removed. The boy helps a a delusional father, right? There's a a possible Scandinavian psychology parody. Boy helps delusional father. It goes on and on. But and so then I wondered about these films that James O made. Are they are they things that he made has made up, or is it his story? Is it his own story? Is it his? I mean, it certainly uh, seems is, like... Or, I mean, they parallel things that we've read in the book. Yeah. So are the things that we've read in the book things that are happening, or are they made up stuff from James O's films? I think that James O's, much like uh, Infinite Jest is to the life of David Foster Wallace, James O's films are like slightly tweaked and abstracted and fictionalized versions, oftentimes, of experiences from his own life. Mm-hmm. Mm, I could see that. So another movie, another film that he watched was The American Century is Seen Through a Brick. Mm-hmm. And it's revealed to us, perhaps for the first time, that the... So there's the story of the brick, right? But the thing that keeps cutting in and out are the vibrating strings of the piano. And it reveals to us that a... So a human thumb first plucks the string and then touches it and stops the string. And it's a, I think it calls it an infantile thumb. Yes. So who's, I guess my question was, so, so yes. So whose thumb? Is it Hal with the fungus on his hand? Is it, is that in, you know, what is the, is that in the main body of the text or is that in a, no, that's in the filmography or or wait, let's see. It's not in the filmography. I didn't look at the filmography. It must be in the story here. It must be six. It definitely is because I just read it. It's right after the footnote 281. 
oh, that's why. Because we leave Hal and then we come back to him. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's that's very confusing. Yeah. It. But anyway, so that, so that made me wonder, whose thumb is it? Um, yeah, I had that same question. And then another film that he watched was The Prenuptial Agreement of Heaven and Hell. Mm-hmm. Um, animated uh, God and Satan play poker with tarot cards for mm-hmm. the soul of a sandwich bag salesman. Mm. Uh, mm. Uh, which made Glad, me think of the, hef- the Glad guy. Yeah, Man from yeah. Glad. So it's like when we read the filmography way, 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 way back... I remember saying that I felt like I felt like every single thing in it was going to be really important. And I felt mm-hmm. like revisiting this time made me see more things, more stuff, you know? Yeah. But for instance, when I was thinking and looking at the valuable coupon film, uh, Hal only watches part of it because it's a maddening monologue from some bespectacled little contemporary... Oh, that's the one you were talking about. By Miles mm-hmm. Penn yeah. and Leith Pearson. Almost as ubiquitous as Reeton Bain in himself's work, but whose name right now, Hal can't for the life of him recall, which oh, suggests right. that Reet and Bain were both in a bunch of James O's films. I don't remember mm-hmm. that from the filmography. Yeah, that's what I said. So that was... I guess that's what I asked then. Uh, and there's the death in Scarsdale... Uh, world-famous dermatologist, endocrinologist, Watt, becomes platonically obsessed with a boy, Bain, Marlon Bain. Oh. Right? Is te- yeah. it, and he's treating for excessive perspiration and develops the condition himself. So then I, my, my comment to myself was, wait, did I know that Marlon Bain acted in James O's films? And this I, was before, yeah. this was before ETA. Oh. This was when he was playing te- junior tennis with, with uh, Oren and their moms oh. were taking them to practice together. And he was but in a before, film. Before, before Bain's It was before subsidized, died. it was before subsidized time. Yeah. Well, he might've huh. been living with them. Because he lived mm. with them before ETA, right? For before like a he year went to ETA, ETA, so it started. could be then. Interesting, mm-hmm. but but I don't think that I realized that. He, so he would, but he would have been a little kid. Yeah. So he was enlisting these little kids to be in these. I don't yeah, know. I mean, it seems really like a weird. number of his films have young children in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, either who are either stand-ins for I, I feel like often stand-ins for himself as a child. The other mysterious thing, and perhaps you guys can help. So every film that they mentioned that Hal was watching, I looked for, looked up in the filmography. One of them was listed as Union of Publicly Hidden in Lynn. Yes. And it doesn't exist in the filmography, I don't think. I looked like that, 10 times yeah, that, through the like, filmography, and I couldn't find it. I wondered about that. I didn't have the patience to check the filmography, but that sounded like... Because mm-hmm. there's Union there's of a, Grammarians in something right, or other. Right, in, in Cambridge. There's and, and a Union, Union of, of nurses. nurses in Berkeley. But Union of Publicly Hidden in Lynn doesn't exist in his filmography. But... But Hal was watching it. 
Well, let me tell you something that's even more baffling. I just did a full text search for Union of Publicly Hidden, and it only shows up right here in this one mention. Weird. Oh, wow. I have no idea what to make of that. Is it like an unfinished, unreleased work? Right. I don't understand. Maybe. What I'm wondering is if it's an interview instead of an actual movie. Like the Union of Publicly Mm. Hidden is interviewing him in Lynn, a town? It could be. I mean, it it sounds like the Union of Hideously and Improbably Deformed. Right, yeah. But it's really weird because it feels like everything was in his filmography. I mean, all kinds of obscure little, like... Although only finished films, only films that had been released in some way. Yeah. True. It also takes great pains to say that each of the cartridges is a carefully labeled black diskette. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which was nice because I could say, oh my gosh, he's not going to die right now. That's good. (laughs) Right. Oh, right. Right. He's not going to accidentally watch something. One of the other weird things, or the things I wondered about and had questions about, is that one of the things that's driving Hal crazy is that he can't remember the name of a kid that was doing the monologues in that valuable coupon, which you talked about. And when Mm -hmm. I looked, I determined that it was Philip Smothergill. Oh. Hmm. And so Ah, I wonder, do we know him? Do we know I him? I have no idea. Do we know I about not, him? I don't know who that is. So I don't he was think a we've kid. heard from him. Okay, Are so you he would sure? have been... He would have been probably Oren's... Well, it was It was also before subsidized time. Yeah. I mean, I can, so I can search, ETA. but I'm pretty sure we haven't... Are you sure? I felt like I should know something about him. Well, I feel like his name popped up a little bit in the um, filmography, but I don't think we know anything else about him. We don't know about him from any other thing. Well, okay, so uh, Joel says, or in one of Joel's sections, um, a good many of James Owen Candenzo's films were silent. He was a self-acknowledged visual filmmaker. His damaged, grinning boy, Joel, never got to know because Oren had disliked him, often carried the case with the lenses, grinning like somebody squinting into bright light. That insufferable child actor, Smothergill, used to contort his face at the boy and he'd just laugh, which sent Smothergill into tantrums that Miriam Prickett would resolve in the bathroom somehow. Huh. Mm. So he was um, just a mean child actor. A mean, mean to uh, Mario. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was also in the low temperature, low, low temperature, temperature civics, civics, a parody. Four sons vie for control of sandwich bag conglomerate after CEO father has ecstatic encounter with death and becomes catatonic. <laughs> hmm, catatonic. And then Hal watches. Hal watches wave bye bye to the bureaucrat. He watches it twice. Yeah. And he says, um, or it says he thinks maybe he likes it because it's one of the most, what does he say? Al secretly likes it to the cartridge and likes to project himself imaginatively into the ex-bureaucrat's character onto the leisurely drive home towards ontological erasure. Is that it? Mm. Well, no, it there's says, something yes, about yes, how it it's says, like, Well, it says, he says, Hal says that it's Mario's favorite. James O. film, uh, mm-hmm. perhaps because of its 
unhip earnestness. Yes, that's right. And that Hal makes fun of Mario for this, but he secretly, but he secretly likes, likes it you. too. Yes. And he likes yeah. to project himself into the man driving home toward ontological erasure. Yeah, mm-hmm. that is it's interesting. About a guy, he, pro- he projects himself onto the that the character, man, not onto the, the little kid. Right. And the, just as a reminder, so the in the film, the guy is always late to work, right? And he finally is told that if he's late again, he loses his job. And yeah. so he goes to all these extreme measures to make sure he gets up early enough uh, to make mm-hmm. the train and to work. But then the power goes out during the night and he doesn't, and right. his alarm doesn't go off. And so he's in this huge hurry and he runs into the train station and knocks over this little kid carrying packages and Mm -hmm. knocks Mm -hmm. all the packages out of his hands and the kid asks him if he's jesus right are you jesus and he the guy has to decide whether to help the kid and miss the train and lose his job or whether to get on the train and he decides decides to help the kid which i have to say when i read it again knowing what i know now about james o having gotten this far through the book I found it totally stunning yeah. that the man stopped to hold, help the kid. And I suppose that's what Mario and Hal like about that's, it. That's mm-hmm. the unhip mm-hmm. earnestness. Also, it right. says it's a clear internal conflict mm-hmm. moment, one of himself's films, very few. Right. I hadn't thought about this until just now. So the, at the end, as he's walking away, the kid says, Mr., are you Jesus? And the, right. bureauc- the ex-bureaucrat replies, don't I wish. Right. Who wishes they were Jesus? Who wishes they were Jesus? (laughs) Not I. I also felt, back to the Smothergill thing, the the kid's name that he can't remember, this Mm -hmm. is really significant for Hal and probably really upsetting because Hal doesn't forget words, ever. True. Never. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And I realize that a name is a special category of words, but I would be willing to bet that he has never forgotten a name. Like 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 maybe this is a symptom from his marijuana withdrawal. Right. Well, and I Mm. kept wondering, so they said, you know, that anybody watch, looking in and seeing Hal in there would say he looked depressed. And so then as I'm reading all this, I'm thinking, so is he really depressed? I guess he Mm. must be. Or is he just, is he really worried about the tennis match and, and what it meant? Or is he suffering from withdrawal from his drugs? Or is it just like this perfect storm of all those things happening to him? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's probably, it's probably a combination of those things, if I had to guess. Mm-hmm. So those were the films that he watched, but then he also plans to torture himself by watching Fun with Teeth. Yeah. No, thank which you. Which is a horrible, like, mm-hmm. if you're afraid, kind of afraid of your dentist, it would not be a, <laughs> a film to watch. And then uh, Baby Pictures of Famous Dictators, where mm-hmm. it completely describes mm, Eschaton. Right. So did James O. make up this game for the film that he made? And then the I, the game the, copies the film, or is the I film the reporting on this already? He, already, I get the impression that Oren and his friends came up with the game, and that James O saw them playing it and thought, like, the all these people are future dictators, uh, mm-hmm. and, yeah, and made the film yeah. based on that. It says then finally, Hal watches one of James O's posthumous hit films. 
I think it means that it became popular after his death. After his okay, the blood blood sister, one tough nun, mm-hmm. which still uh. sounds like an awesome <laughs> movie. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, it sounds right. like a real like grindhouse schlock movie. Please, yeah. I want that movie. <laughs> Hal thinks it's gratuitously nasty and overwrought. Mm-hmm. Parody of revenge and recidivism action genre. <laughs> and it says that that film, Hal doesn't know it, but that that film came out of James O's one brief experience with AA. Yes. In, that he in then Boston, left because right? he couldn't the handle midnight. the, the right. cliches and the uh, simplistic God stuff. Right. We're kind of, this last chunk here kind of jumps around between a few people. And we start out with poor Tony, who has come out the other side of his withdrawal, his awful withdrawal experience. Yeah, he's feeling um, pretty good, comparatively, yeah. for a while. Yeah. He fiddle DD'd the paramedic's warnings that post-seizure feelings of well-being were notoriously deceptive and transient. I thought it was a fine statement about healthcare in our country. Yeah. Some of the <laughs> things that they say, it's like, Hospital it's unfortunately show you a kind not of a free hospital. Respect. Yeah, and yeah. it's unfortunately not a free hospital, but it is a free country. So if you right. can't pay for your hospitalization, you are free to go. Right. It's so horrible. And if you don't have insurance and say you're feeling okay now, they say, go with God. When they find out you don't have insurance, they all of a sudden defer to your subjective diagnostic knowledge of your own condition. Right. I did like the description of the big brick cake of the hospital. I thought that was very fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's here that we learn that poor Tony and his friends worked with Bertrand Antetois. Right. In fact, he's headed. He's headed for the Antetois joke shop. Yes. Yes, he Mm -hmm. is. And I'm I'm confused about when all the bad stuff went down there. Do we know well, when presumably, well, poor this? Tony was out of it. It's it is before this. Um, was it? If you give me a second, I can find okay. the date. Okay, yeah, because this is November fourteen, May first. Oh, mm. so it happened a long time ago. Yeah. So the shop has been sitting empty for a long time, presumably. Presumably, well, so that's one of the, this is one of those scenarios where there's like a few sections before we get back to the. The date entry. Oh right. So I'm not so positive not that it's positive, actually May first, but seems right. That sounds right to me. Yeah. I like the explanation of how he was connected to the Antitois. It said he had traded his help right with an operation at a Sheraton hotel, and it describes that whole operation. Oh it yeah. It made me laugh because it's like, is it the Thomas Crown affair? It is, the, yeah, where the they art, all dress the as, as thief thing. Um, yeah, they all dress the same, and so I forget what it was that the actual happened, operative did. after the crime goes down. The, was it a pie these, in somebody's face or something like that? It was something kind of stupid. Pies are never stupid. Pies are <laughs> so never, oh, it couldn't oh, possibly oh, uh, be that. The Quebecois insurgent. Through foul, semi-liquid, violet waste from a souvenir miniature waste displacement barrel in the face of the Canadian Minister of Inter-Ona and Trade. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and how so were then they dressed? Tony et al. were dressed, uh, um, wear identical red leather coats and auburn wigs and spike heels. Spike heels, And, and right. go and hang around mm-hmm. the lobby of Harvard Square right. Sheridan Commander Hotel. So we just get kind of that little... Thing. We, he doesn't arrive anywhere in that section. He's right. just like kind of g- headed towards the Antetois 
Right. Brothers yeah, but shop. we do kind of loop back around to like yeah, the moment when he yeah he walks past the window. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then we're at uh, Ennett House briefly, mm-hmm. and there's a thing where Jeffrey Day hints at the fact that Lens must be gone. It must says Lens was anymore. discharged. Lens is out. I yeah. think he got oh. dumped after the parking incident, no doubt, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, and that Jeffrey Day is surprised that he misses him. Tiny Yule has been moved into the room in his yeah, place. Yeah, although he would never admit to anyone that he misses right. him. Right, right. Yeah. So then we learn more about Kate Gompert, though. She, yes. We, and, and a dive into depression again. Right. It talks they specifically, talk of, there, there's more than one kind of so-called depression. Right. There's, there's right. like anhedonia, melancholy. And then right. there's this other thing that's worse. Mm-hmm. And that, that ETA students take on James O's suicide, the younger students all assume that it was that, they call it anhedonia, that melancholy right. that right. led mm-hmm. him to kill himself. The presumption uh, that he'd achieved all his goals and found that the achievement didn't confer meaning or joy. Right. Say it's often tied to middle-aged crisis. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like you achieved all your goals, so now what? But they say very clearly this is not what killed him. Right. Yeah. They, they assume that he achieved all his goals and didn't find joy. Says they're, they're young. They still haven't let go of that carrot stick approach of their mm-hmm. hometown coaches mm-hmm. uh, to embrace the ETA way. We older people know, we older people know it's more invigorating to want than to have. Yeah. And Hal doesn't think that it was the melancholy that led to his dad's suicide, but he has no idea about why. Right. <laughs> he killed himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah and here is where it says Hal uh, right. doesn't so feel like sad. he has much of an interior emotional life. Right. That That's is where sad. That, that quote that you said, that he hasn't had a bona fide intensity of interior life type emotion since he was young. Mm-hmm. Moms thinks that she knows him inside and out, but she's really only hearing her own echo inside of him. Yeah. That in so in fact, too. inside Hal, there's pretty much nothing at all he knows. Right. One mm. thing he feels to the limit lately is that he's lonely. That's so sad. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But it seems like a pretty accurate illustration of depression in my mind. Right. I thought so, too. I thought that the description kind of gave me insights into feelings of depression. Yeah. It also, I thought, made some good points about being a teenager. Mm-hmm. Because there's mm-hmm. been there have been other parts that we've read about that Mario doesn't like it that nobody can talk about serious stuff without making a joke out of it, right? Right. And they talk in this section about how they say the arts in millennial USA treat anhedonia and internal emptiness as hip and cool, mm-hmm. like it's really cool mm-hmm. to pretend that you don't feel stuff. And uh, that glorification of world weariness, kind of. And they say, yeah. uh, it's not peer pressure so much as peer hunger. Kids would do anything to not be alone. Mm-hmm. They believe sentiment, we young, we young believe that sentiment equals naivete. 
So who's talking right. in this? I, I don't know. Question of who's, talk, who, who's it, it talking. It feels like the, we, the point of view changes young. too, because yeah, we young, we and were, yet it also right. says we who are mostly not small children. So it's like right. young adult narrator. Is, is this Hal, Hal talking? Is it Hal? I don't know. I don't think mm. so, because there are multiple moments where there's a... Hal doesn't yet know blah, blah, blah. Right, right. It's like Mm -hmm. somebody, is it Oren? Who is it? I'm not sure. But it's in this chunk with Kate Gomper, right? Is it Mm -hmm. all this? They say uh, sophisticated viewers like the American century is seen through a brick uh, because of its unsubtle thesis that naivete is the last true terrible sin in the theology of millennial America. Mm-hmm. Can you explain? Here, I have a note that says, "Explain why this is." What do they mean? Well, I think why, I think that why, this is why, why this is feels to me like David Foster Wallace's war on irony again. Like he's expressing some sort of editorial dismay at the idea that anyone would say a thing and not truly mean it, or or anyone would deny the validity or the power of their internal emotional life. I think that's what he's getting at here. Mm-hmm. Why does it say, though, that people see this particular movie, which is about the life of a brick, right? And the strumming of the piano string. Why do they say that it, its unsubtle thesis is about Yeah, I don't know. I feel like... Mean? Or is it the I feel like naivete I'm missing of the here. young child's thumb hitting the string? And stopping everything, like they didn't realize that the sound would stop if they touched it. Is it something about that? I didn't understand that. Why sophisticated viewers would say yeah, that about that Yeah, because based film. on the description that we get of the film, I don't see how it's saying anything about irony or uh, naivete or... Right, and it says something there about the myth, the myth that cynicism and naivete are mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. So you can be naive and cynical all at the same time. But I don't mm-hmm. get I don't get how that relates to the it also says that Hal believes that being really human is probably to be unavoidably sentimental and naive. Although then it says that he came up with this idea while high. That was in <laughs> an end note. <laughs> right. And one of the really American things about Hal probably is the way he despises what he is really lonely for. Mm-hmm. So sad. Yeah. So then there's this story that Kate tells about a man in his 50s, a depressed patient at Newton Wellesley Hospital when Kate Gompert was there. Uh, his hobby was model trains. Right. And he, right. he suffered a head injury that made him depressed beyond all human endurance. Just perpetually, right. and he's uh, his his greatest dream is some treatment that will take away all of his feelings. Right, which is what kind of Kate Gompert wanted when she was in the in the psychiatric right. hospital. Right, right, and it's she also was like that the shock treatment would do that for, like, to stop thinking, stop feeling. Yeah, completely. it also reminds me of Jeffrey Day's description of the dark shape that emerges sometimes and makes him feel like. He can't go on living feeling that way. Do you remember that? Oh, right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Plays yeah. that chord on his violin that, as a kid right, that causes right. it to emerge, and then it comes right. back when he's an adult. This, this is a very sad story, the story of the, the model mm-hmm. train guy. 
Right. It's that problem that you hear from other people who struggle with like really serious mental health issues. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like when they say that the thing that manages their the symptoms of their mental health disorder make their life almost unbearable. <laughs> right. You know, like you manage yeah. so you're trying to manage the symptoms so that you can keep going, but it doesn't even come close to fixing anything. In fact, it kind of makes new issues come up in a mm-hmm. way. Yeah, and it so it says Kate knows that he must be one of the most courageous people she's ever known to go on living like that, but that also imagining him in his basement assembling train tracks while his his body is silently screaming for relief from flames no one else could help with or even feel is like a horrifying thing to her. Right. Mm -hmm. Thus lonely, a closed circuit both applied and received from within. She talks Mm -hmm. about the way she feels when she's really in acute depression, right? Mm -hmm. Part of the problem is that the therapist, for instance, the psychoanalyst or the psychologist or whoever, they can't really understand. There's no way for them to know the feeling. Yeah. I was just really moving, I thought, talking about depression. And Hal isn't old enough yet to know that numb emptiness is not the worst kind of depression. Mm-hmm. They talk mm-hmm. about that melancholy, that anhedonia, that that type of numb emptiness is the remora on the great white shark of pain. Right. In clinical depression, anguish, despair, torment, a level of psychic pain wholly incompatible with human life, a sense of radical and thoroughgoing evil, a poisoning of self, a nausea of the cells and mm-hmm. the soul. Everything is part of the problem and there is no solution. It is a hell for one. It's probably a better description of depression than I've ever read, I would Mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Mm -hmm. An explanation of what would lead someone to the point of suicide, Mm -hmm. you know, that you would become so depressed that that is the only answer that you can see. Right. So why did James O. kill himself? (laughs) Well, so I'm I'm still not completely convinced that he killed himself you think it was uh, murder i think it might have been a it murder what uh, murder i i don't know i i think it's probably most likely that he killed himself but i don't want to eliminate the possibility that he didn't kind of like a hansel and gretel thing Getting well, to I don't stick know. His I think. I mean, the they talk about like look at something. somewhere think. earlier. I think Kate Gompert talks about how the or or someone who deals with depression talks about how the uh, the idea of suicide contracts is silly because right, right, right. You sign them when you're not in the state in which suicide feels right. like urgently necessary, and when it right. does, then nothing else matters. Right. Um, exactly. Or, or like when Jeffrey Day talks about in, in college, this dark shape emerges and he feels like he needs to immediately jump out the nearest window. Like, I think that's right. That's what happened to James O. Uh, if he did kill himself, that like he he needed to end it urgently, immediately. Right and the microwave was right there. And that was the way to do it because it was the, the quickest answer. I except guess, but he also had to mess around with it to make it happen. That's true. Yeah, that is true change the way the microwave worked to be able to do it. 
But so I also I have no idea how long that would have taken. Yeah, maybe I, it know, would take him, take him it just a, been, a minute. It's, it's just, yeah, it's a just scientist. a switch. It would have been simple for him to do. Yeah. I'm not sure of that, but... Anyway, on that cheery anyway, note, that's the, cheery, end of our, cheery, cheery <laughs> that's the end of our reading. Yeah. Yeah. Depression <laughs> and child abuse and poor Hal and Helen Steeply and now another suspicious character in Potricor. And mm-hmm. what a mush. And, and poor Tony... With no health insurance. What a chunk of reading. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And why would Hal watch those horrible films if he's feeling depressed? Does it make <laughs> him feel closer to his father? Or does he just like the depressing topics? Or or just something familiar? Is, why I think, in the world I think would that's he go the and one. watch It's just yeah. something to do and it feels... I remember reading something that highly recommended that if you're feeling sad or angry, you should listen to music that reflects that as opposed mm. to oh. really cheerful mm. music right, because doing that makes you feel less alone. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I can see that actually. So like if you I feel like a this cheerful is cheerful or mm, funny movie, it would yeah. feel just make him more of an outsider. Yeah, maybe this is making him feel less lonely, but he's also ruminating on how he feels lonely, so I don't know what to do with that. And why does he feel like he hasn't had an actual true emotion since he was a little kid? Was it the fungus eating that did it? I ate something. Maybe. (laughs) It could be that the fungus killed his internal... Yeah, subjective experience of self. I keep going. I keep going back to that. That that seems like such a simplistic answer to those people at the the dean's office or whatever it was. That that the book starts out with with him having his call it something I ate. Yeah, that that may turn out to be really true. I don't know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you'd like to get in touch with us for any reason, you can email us at smallcleverpod at gmail.com. And we're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at smallcleverpod. Uh, does anyone have anything they would like to plug? Uh, while you're on Instagram following smallcleverpod, you can also follow me at cardboardvv, where I post my paintings. I've been really admiring the last round that you posted, Vinny. They're superb. Oh, thank you. Uh, my website is agingrick.com, and I'm on Instagram at coffeestopfix. I also have a website, which is briannacratz.com, and you can read something that I wrote many, many moons ago about those bubblegum poems. I have nothing. I, have, I, I don't have a website. <laughs> I don't have a blog. I don't have anything. But I am here. That's good. Uh, That's good enough. I am here, and I'll be reading and holding cats and... Yeah. Good. Yep. Next time we'll be talking about pages 698 to 716. Our music is by David Nichols. You can check out his newsletter, The Land of Random, on Substack. Thanks for listening. I like to read, but I got into podcasting for the fame. Not to be mentioning the large money, the endorsings and appearings. Why are you doing this to me? She has her butt in my lap and her face looking up at me and her hand on my chest. Just one hand. She needs to tell you something important. Yes.